0: Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I, I draw your attention again to Psalm 4. If you have your uh, <coughs> excuse me, if you have your outline uh, material, it's on page five. Uh, I don't. I don't think I had mentioned this, but I. Uh, I, I don't think I did. Maybe I did, but uh, I, I try to give a title to each Psalm, and I, I called Psalm 4 "Safe and Secure in God's Love." And uh, whether that helps or not, that's just kind of a, a title I've given to it. Uh, we are not uh, not quite sure here. Again, let me quickly review. It if you weren't here last time, but this is another Psalm of David. At least the superscription says that. But we do not know the circumstance uh, or the details of of uh, David's life here and when he wrote the Psalm. But nonetheless, uh, <clears throat> David is in a situation where. Uh, He is under um, attack. Uh, There is some evidence that, uh, particularly from verse 2, that these are individuals within his own government, his own um, kingdom, whether they're military or or civil uh, 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 leaders. Nonetheless, they seem to be within his government that are attacking him. And he is lamenting the situation he's in. But everything he says, he keeps coming back to the Lord. And we looked at verse 1, which is filled with uh, wonderful truth. God of my righteousness, that's his position. He reviews God's faithfulness to him in the past. You've given me relief when I was in distress. And he calls upon God to be gracious again, uh, the end of verse 1. And then verse 2 is a summary of what these individuals, again, that ESV, which is what I read, uh, what I'm tr- uh, reading my translation, says, O men, that term could mean O men of rank, O men of authority, men in his government. And for whatever reason, they're shaming him, they're turning against him, they're using lies and vain words, continuing that language there verse 2. And then that triumphant, triumphant verse 3, that's one of my favorite in this psalm. But know that the Lord, Yahweh, has set apart the godly. We looked at that last week. That's from Chesed. It's it's an adverb, but it's from Chesed. The the covenant ones for himself. Uh, Precious truth there. The Lord hears when I call him. And um, I would just stress again the importance of verse uh, 3 there. Because he is a covenant uh, object of the covenant love of God, from that word godly, he has the certainty that the Lord hears his prayers and the Lord answers his prayers. And whenever, um, whenever I see something like that in the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that certainty, that confidence in, in prayer... I always think of Matthew 7, uh, verses, I think it's 7 through 11. But where Jesus talks about, as he's he's teaching on prayer, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be open, uh, and so on. That certainty that God hears and answers prayer. And then Jesus in that same passage reviews that God's answers are always good answers. God never, ever does anything that's not in our best interest. And so it's just a reminder, and I love that. He has a clear understanding of who he is in his relationship with God, and therefore he has that certainty that God hears him when he prays, when he cries out to him. So that's kind of a quick summary of of what we've done so far. Now verse 4 and verse 5 is a call to those individuals, again, if we assume they may be in his government, He's a calling on them to repent. He's calling on them to, uh, uh, to a life of repentance and faith. Verse 4, let me really read verse 4 and 5. Be angry, I'm not sure that's the best translation, but be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So he is addressing these individuals in verse 2. Be angry, that is maybe not the best way to translate that. Be agitated, be conflicted. You could even translate that tremble and do not sin. I don't know what all different translations there would be in a group this size, but maybe you, you have something different than be angry. But I like better the idea of tremble and do not sin. Because the theme so far, verse one, verse two, and verse three, to discredit King David, to attempt to bring King David down, to speak dishonorably about King David is to discredit and speak dishonorably about God. Because David is one of the godly ones. He's one of the objects of God's covenant love. He's a, a, one who's experienced the covenant love of God. So in light of that, it is, it is proper, indeed, uh, understandable why he would say, hey, you guys aren't really dealing with me. You're dealing with God. Because David is the anointed king of Judah, the anointed king of Israel. And he is, he is God's, uh, at this point, God's Messiah, God's anointed one. And therefore, do not sin. The result of trembling... Understanding that your enemy is not just me, it's God. That should cause you to tremble. And do not sin. Knock it off, what you're doing. And so David is bringing in a much larger picture to this situation. You're not only dealing with me, you're dealing with with God, because I, and that's not... Um. A statement of self-elevation or pride, that's a statement of fact. To oppose me in this situation is to oppose God. Therefore, I love this, ponder in your own hearts, the second part of verse 4. Just think about this, another way of saying that. Think about what you are really doing. Ponder this, think about this on your beds and be silent. Stop the lying. Stop the false accusations. Stop trying to bring dishonor and shame to me as the king. That's very clear. There's not any ambiguity there in what he's asking, insisting upon. So stop what they're doing. And then verse 5, the other side of repentance is get right with God. Offer right sacrifices. In other words, the ones that God would accept that come from your heart. You're, you're not just going through the motions. You're serious about your worship with, of God. Offer right sacrifices and then put your trust in the Lord. And so as as David is, is summarizing, he's done in verse, verse three. So I, I, I really like, <coughs> excuse me, I really like this. Part of the psalm because Dave it's not imprecatory here what David I hope you remember what that word means we've talked about that before but it's it's not just it, uh, trying to seek God's vengeance as the righteous and holy God but he's asking these guys assuming again that these are individuals within his government get right with God because to discredit me is to discredit the Lord where I am his anointed. So in a very real sense then verse 4 and verse 5 from King David's uh perspective is a call to to repentance, a call to faith and a call to to mercy, be merciful instead of seeking vengeance against these individuals. So it's kind of a a really neat balance in what David is trying to do. That's why um Many believe that these are not the military enemies of God, of David, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, or something like that. These are individuals within his own government who, for whatever reason, are undermining him, opposing him, misrepresenting what he's saying, misrepresenting what he's even perhaps doing, and David is calling for them to to repent. And I, I like that, uh, in in that sense. All right. Does that make sense? Yes. verse Okay. Then verse 6, 7, and 8, <coughs> excuse me, then verse 6, 7, and 8 draws the psalm to a conclusion. And this is where what I had said when I uh, shared with you my title for this psalm, Safe and Secure. You see, what David is really saying is, it is only in the presence of God where you find real safety and security. So let me read 6, 7, and 8 together, and then we'll, we'll go back and take it apart. There are many who say, <clears throat> who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Wonderful words so the, the the psalmist here, what David is doing is again summarizing where is his safety, Where is his security? Is it in the prosperity and material wealth of his that he sees in his opponents, or even his life no? So he says, there were many who are saying, who will show us some good? That's a, it's kind of an unusual rhetorical question, who will show us some good? What, what is going on here? What's the evidence? What's the evidence, King David, to discredit you is to discredit God. What's the evidence for that? How can you boldly, almost audaciously, say that? So they're saying to him, show us some good. Show us evidence of God's favor. Show us that. If to discredit you is to discredit God, give us the evidence of that. And so then David responds to that rhetorical question with language that's very similar to that wonderful benediction In Numbers chapter 6, 24 through 26, lift lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And that, you know, the face of God, the evidence of God's favor, O Yahweh, lift up your face. Let, let, Let them see your favor upon my life, O God. Well, what will they see? Wealth? material gain not that any of that's evil but look at how he responds in verse seven you meaning of course the lord you have put more joy in my heart than they have with all their grain and all their wine that just abounds overflowing. the idea is that it's just gushing their material prosperity david says that's not that's not what i'm talking about in terms of god's favor And he chooses joy in my heart. Now, that's a strategic silence there. I want you to think about that. If you were going to show the evidence of God's favor in your life to someone, and again, not in a boastful way, not in a pride-filled way, that's not what he's doing. Even if you just ask yourself this question, what is the evidence of God's favor upon my life? How would you answer that question? What evidence is there in your life of God's favor? David chooses one, joy in my heart. You know, I'm not sure I would choose that as the very first one. So what does he mean by that? The evidence of God's favor in my life, you have put more joy in my heart than all of the material, financial, tactile, objective demonstrations materially that I have. So let's think about that. So since there's a fairly small group and class participation is still possible virtually, what does he mean by joy?
1: I think he might mean the, the peace that he achieves with God, knowing that he's with God and God is with him.
0: Okay. That's, I think that's good, Fred. It, it centers on some of the tangible results of his relationship with the Lord.
1: Good. Anything else? I would say peace in in my <coughs> calmness about my days, okay. confidence that He leads, and if I follow, uh, I will have contentment, peace, and joy.
0: Okay, happiness. he's going to bring up peace
2: in verse eight. So, um, uh, a happiness. The happiness. overwhelming happiness that belies circumstances. Okay. Okay.
0: So a synonym for joy would be happiness that belies okay. circumstances. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Where do you see joy in the New Testament?
2: The Can you George think of it? About... Before him. Okay.
0: Um, think of relations five, and 23. It's one of the fruit of the spirit, isn't it? Yeah. Love, joy, peace, uh, patience. patience, remember all those? Yeah. So it's one of the fruit of the spirit. So it's at least from that vantage point, it's something supernatural. It's not a natural response to things. It's a supernatural response to things. Um, okay. I think we're getting close, uh, but I don't think we've nailed it yet. I think we're getting close. Um, joy is a very difficult term to define, to be honest with, when you're talking about how it is used in the Bible. All right? Let me ask you a couple questions to probe this a little more deeply. Is joy responding to circumstances, or is joy Responding to God in the midst of circumstances, is joy. Is joy the natural response to the ups and downs of life? I mean, you know, even as a Christian, life is hard. We live in a broken world, so life's like, you know, you have the troughs and then you have the mountain peaks, and you have the trough. I mean, that's life. Doing life. I one time heard joy described in this way. Joy is trusting and responding to God, not circumstances. Joy is not a circumstance-controlled response. Joy is a spirit-controlled response. Rooted in, as a number of you said in the various responses, rooted in your position, rooted in who you are in Christ. Rooted in your identity in Christ. Joy is a word of emotion. Joy is a word that is outwardly identifiable. I, in my uh, early morning class this morning, uh, we are in a, a totally different book, but the word joy came up when Jesus is speaking. He speaks of my joy in this particular passage. And we talked a little bit about that, and I I used, I tried to think of an example of someone I knew who consistently exhibited joy, regardless of the circumstances. And I said to the men earlier this morning, I thought of my grandmother, my mother's mother, my grandmother. And uh, uh, she died when she was 84, it was quite a few years ago she passed away. But as I was growing up and even after I got married to Peggy and we would go back to visit and so on, I'd always go see her. Every single time I saw grandma, she always smiled. She always had an incredible demeanor. And I say all that because she lived a very hard life. It was a very difficult life. She lost her first child at age six um, due to pneumonia. That child would never have died today. Her husband, my grandfather, contracted a rare kidney disease. It would eventually take his life, but for almost 20 years, uh, they had to live with that kidney disease. They had to refinance their home twice because there wasn't anything like Medicare or anything like that. And yet, grandma always had that smile, always that engaging trust and confidence. This is hard, but the Lord's got everything under control. My grandmother was not responding to the circumstances alone she was responding to the circumstances based on her trust and confidence in what God was doing that's joy are there sometimes tears with God-centered joy yes are there is there sometimes like a kind of an almost indescribable pain in your gut in the midst of joy-centered yes but it's flows out from our faith and our trust we are not circumstance controlled people
1: we're spirit controlled people Uh, jim can you tie this to first peter that delineation between happiness joy and hope
0: oh that's a wonderful yes that's a wonderful place to go uh to see how all of that is connected yes And uh, you, you added a word that I didn't use, and that's a word I should have used. In addition to faith and trust and confidence in our Lord, it's the hope that that faith and confidence and trust brings, a hope for the future. That the way things are now, whatever that specific circumstance might be, it's not always going to be like that. And so yeah that's Glenn, thank you. that's a good good place to add that whole uh, in first Peter there, but they had that whole idea of hope how central that is to joy. I just find this extraordinary don't you when these guys insist, show us God's favor you keep saying to discredit you to discredit God, show us the evidence of God's favor in your life. Evidence my joy, the joy that you bring to my heart God. And David is able, I, I think, is able to say that with tremendous confidence. Okay, that's item number one I'm going to bring to the table as evidence of God's favor in my life. And I, I think that's the kind of thing for you and me to really, uh, to really think about that. I have thought a lot about this because I'm telling you, I, this is one of the areas in my life personally, I really struggle with this. I really struggle with consistently exhibiting the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah said, you remember we studied Nehemiah a number of months ago? They're uh, in the midst of the people in the midst of struggling with building the wall and all that. And Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I don't know if you remember him saying that to them. And if you read the book of Philippians, the thesis of the book of Philippians is the joy of the Lord. That word joy, it comes up over and over and over and over and over again in that book. So here King David is using as the evidence of God's favor in his life, a heart thing, something that's going on inside of him that is being evidenced by his outward demeanor, the joy of the Lord. And then he concludes <coughs> Excuse me. Then he concludes in verse 8: a couple of you mentioned this term, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. And you all know this, but the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. So, in shalom, what does that mean? Shalom, and we've talked about this before, so this is a review, but shalom, peace, as the Hebrew thought about it, as the modern day. Jewish person thinks about it. Peace. Things are right with God. Things are settled with God. That's how they're supposed to look at that. That's definitely what David means here. In peace, things are right with God. Things are settled with God. There's nothing between me and the Lord. I lie down and sleep. That's the key. This is how David's talking. That's the key to a good night's rest why the rest of the clause in verse 8 because you alone O yahweh make me dwell in safety you've taken care of everything only the only place of security in a troubled word, world is your relationship with the lord jesus i'm putting that in the 2020 language Because when David writes this, the cross hadn't occurred yet, as you know. But he's saying that what is tremendous truth, wonderful truth, shalom, shalom. I'm right with God. Things are settled with God, a place of safety and security. And the result of that is I can get a good night's sleep. So um, I think probably verse 8 is pretty self-evident. It's quite profound, but it's pretty self-evident this is a fantastic psalm it is one of my favorites because of the theology of the psalm which we spent a lot of time on last week in verse one and then these eminently practical things that David keeps bringing up as he's dealing with these assuming again I'm correct there these political enemies these enemies in the court that are trying to bring him down okay any questions about any of this? There's a lot of application for each one of us as we think about some of the terms that David has chosen to use in this magnificent work.
1: I, Differentiate I, between joy and contentment.
0: Okay, that, that broke up a little bit. The difference between joy and contentment that your, was that your question. Okay, Correct. okay, okay, good. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about contentment in the next psalm, but that's great. Contentment um, is an outworking of shalom, an outworking of peace. And I think the evidence of contentment is the joy that we exhibit. In other words, um, Paul speaks a great deal of contentment in Philippians chapter four. And he says, whatever circumstance I'm in, I'm content. I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor. This is Paul speaking in Philippians 4. But I've learned regardless of the circumstance and regardless of the specifics, I'm content in my relationship with the Lord. And I think there is, with contentment comes a settledness, a stability, a, a, rock, a rock-solid security that's not rocked, uh, I shouldn't use rocked, is not um, overcome by the difficulties of life and also not challenged, not tempted by, not lured away from what is really important in life. Um, I think all of you would agree, this is a very broad stroke statement, but in American civilization, we often attach contentment with the portfolio, you, the portfolio you have, the amount of money you have in the bank, or the kinds of stock you own or land you own or whatever. David just said here in response, that that's that's not the key to peace and contentment. So to be content with the Lord is to be satisfied with where you are in life. Satisfaction is a synonym, let me put it this way, Divine satisfaction is a synonym for divine contentment. Whatever state I'm in, Paul says, I'm content, I'm satisfied. And it flows from our theology. What we know about God, what we know about his goodness, what we know about his providence, what we know about his sovereignty, what we know that God is good and always has my best interests at heart, I can be content at this point in my life. I can be satisfied because of my trust in the Lord with where I am at this point in life. And then the evidence of that is joy. Okay? And I think that's how you, that's definitely what Paul does in Philippians chapter 4. If you're like me, and I don't probably think any of you are like me, this is an area I really struggle with because I am, I am very goal-oriented, I'm very task-oriented, and I am rarely contented with anything. <laughs> and that's not good, that isn't, it's not good. I have to constantly struggle with that. And my wife is very good in helping me to always, 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 always remember. And that's why she keeps doing it for 50 plus years. So um, anyway, it's just extremely important that we make those connections. And that's a goal that we should have in our own lives. And that's why I find this song so magnificent and marvelous and how David knits all these different things together in a profound way. Fred, were you going to ask a question?
1: Yeah, I was. What are are the foundations (laughs) in 2020 to achieve this this peace? What, uh, was your word foundations? Yes. Well, what are the, the principal cornerstones to establish this contentment that we talk about here today?
0: Well, uh, obviously, the very first one would to make to be certain that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that you put your faith in Him and understand what He did at the cross and through the resurrection and all of that. But then. Once that's settled, then it is that that the beginning of that walk with the Lord, a walk of trust, a walk of confidence, a, a, a walk that is based on the conviction that God does have my best interests at heart, that God always has my back, that God is always, always, always with me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, and those kinds of Excuse me. Those kinds of wonderful words that I've just tried to summarize, which reflect our identity and who we are in Christ, is the foundation of contentment. I mean, without those things, you know, you're not going to be experiencing the joy and the contentment that, this, that the psalmist is talking about here. The, the bottom line is it really it really flows out of our vibrant, robust relationship with the Lord Jesus
1: and And some of the elements in there jim um i mean we're like before we came on today, Russ said this is this is a tremendous bible study, and i'm glad uh, I'm glad that I can finally you know be kind of more of a um, a part of it uh, more so with this zoom feature but uh like we're in the bible studying and and that, and then we talk about prayer and Talk about loving others as we would love ourselves, and I mean, what kind of the everyday things in life? Because we're we go about our life every day, and what what are the uh, more of that kind of thing that you were alluding to? What would some of those elements be like? Well, I mean, it's a
0: broad question, but I mean it. <coughs> I, I'm i going to be very personal here. My, my approach to this is, first of all, in my prayer life, I not only look at my prayer life as, as something I do in the morning when my wife and I have our uh, devotional time at breakfast and we pray through our list and things like that, but it's also that ongoing vital relationship with God where I'm talking to him about everything. conversational approach to prayer. Now, now, I hope you understand what I mean by that, but I shared this with you before. Rosalind Rinker defines prayer as a dialogue between two people who love one another, and I think that's what partially Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. That is a tremendous source of contentment, a tremendous source of stability in your life, and secondly, and these so go together, so, so inextricably linked, but is time in the Word of God. I mean, we need our minds renewed. We need our minds refreshed. We need our m- emotions renewed. We need our, the spiritual vitality of our life renewed, and it is only the Word of God. And I think, thirdly, it is that the importance of, of making sure, um, and I don't know how to say this, but make sure you have like a network of friends or a network of, of other Christians that you can draw on their strength and draw on their help when things are a little bit difficult. You know that individuals are praying for you and individuals have got your back and supporting you. That's kind of that, that wonderful blessing of God in, uh, in, in, in the church. I mean, the large church, the organic church, the body of Christ that we all share in. No matter where you are, you can have believers who are supporting you and, and being with you. They're the kinds of things that I think are also key elements of, of of contentment and joy in our life.
2: All right. Anything else? Um, for for me, the uh, <laughs> the uh, primary thing is control, right? Uh, you know, I find that my joy tends to well up when uh, the control is where it should be with Christ. I find as a person of action, similar to yourself. I want, I'm dissatisfied. I want things to happen. You know, I've got to make them happen and I teach my kids that the only thing you control is the two feet around your feet. Everything else (laughs) is influence. And then I go and do the opposite thinking that I'm in control and every, that is always the thing that drifts me in the wrong direction. And whenever I'm experiencing joy that I'm dwelling in God, I'm in that place and i'm trusting you know it doesn't mean that i'm weak or i'm not doing things or i don't have to be somebody other than who i am or i don't accomplish things it's simply that i dwell stay or live in in christ and that's you know when i re- remember that he is in control and that's where that control needs to be for me that's 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 kind of that borderline, that seesaw, where I'm I'm joyful over here, then I'm not, then I am, then I'm not, <laughs> and that seems to be the distinction for me, at least.
0: Well, I, I think you're on to something there, Russ, because it is um, perhaps a little more characteristic of, of men than women, although I'm not sure that's accurate. But there is, there can be a certain discontent. When things aren't going the way you want them to. And you just, because we we seek to control so much of our lives, we have to step back and keep, constantly remind ourselves we're not in control. In John chapter 15, the gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus speaks over and over again. That whole chapter is explaining what that means. Abide in me. And the analogy Jesus uses is the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches if a branch produces absolutely nothing on its own a branch produces only only what it gets from the from the vine and jesus is the vine so we the, the the spiritual sustenance the spiritual nurturing and i have defined abiding again we were talking about that earlier this morning in my class but abiding as that that mindset and demeanor and, and commitment to dependence on Jesus. I can do all things through Christ, Paul writes. I can't do anything on my own. And that is something I constantly have to be reminding myself of. And that is, that is, that is part of what can do us in as men. And Russ, you put it very correctly. We try to, we say, okay, Lord, I'm giving this to you. And 10 minutes later, we take it back and and we say okay i got this one lord i'll take care of this one and often god says okay uh, i'll let you go with that and then we kind of see things get all messed up now i'm speaking in generality here and in a way maybe we're getting a little bit off track but the 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 words of david here in verses 6 through 8 the two key words are joy and peace and they they really define Show us the favor of God in your life. His opponents are saying, here it is. And we'll put it on the table. It's joy and the peace of God. The joy in my heart. And God, you've given that to me. You've put that in my heart. It's just, it's a marvelous, it's a marvelous song. And I, I, I am just struck by the brilliance. He's under the inspiration of the spirit, but the brilliance of David here and how he deals with this. It's quite wonderful. Are you ready to start five,
1: uh, Doctor Ekman?
0: Yes, uh, Fred. Yeah, <clears throat>
1: yeah. The, so I, I was I was looking uh, in the last of verse uh, eight. Uh, you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that that parallels into the into the New Testament, I think, when, when Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life."
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Good, good parallel. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's start chapter four, or Psalm 5, rather. Um, I've called this Deliverance from Dangerous Deception. Deliverance from Dangerous Deception, if you want a title for it, that's what I've called it. Again, if the superscription is right, this is another Psalm of David, but it's also another Lament Psalm. Um, and I hope you remember what that means, we've talked about that before. But I I want you to look with me (laughs) at the first two verses. There's an urgency about these verses. Something's going on in David's life. And there's an urgency as he talks to the Lord. Give ears to my word, O Lord. Consider my groaning. You could translate that sighing. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. Now, what I'd, I'd invite you to look at in those two uh, verses are the three separate titles. O Yahweh, my King, and my God. So you have, O Yahweh, the, the great I am, the self-sufficient, self-existent one of the universe. But look at verse two. That's Yahweh, my king, my God. King David has an intimate, personal relationship with the great I am of the universe, the self-sufficient, self-existent creator, the I am. And so you, you have these extraordinary words. Give ear to my words, Yahweh. Consider my sighing, my groaning, I'm hurting. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king, my God. For to you do I pray. There is no one else to go to. Whatever the situation is in David's life, whatever the specifics are, and we don't know what they are. He doesn't tell us. From his perspective, From his vantage point at this point in his life, there is no one else to go. So he appeals to the great sovereign of the universe, the great judge of the universe, the self-sufficient, self-existent one of the universe. He goes to him and prays. And he cries out with a sense of urgency There's no one else I have to go to. So the sense here, unlike Psalm 4, this is much more serious. This is extremely difficult for David. This is a very precarious situation he's in. And he has absolutely no one else to turn to but the Lord. And so this sense of urgency... That is, is, is evidenced by him crying out like this to the Lord. And then I just love, I love verse 3 because this, this summarizes, this summarizes the kind of relationship he has with Yahweh, my King, my God. O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Jesus said, "Ask and it shall be given; knock and it shall be opened." There's that certainty that God hears, God answers. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you, and watch. Now, this, of, of course, is in the Old Testament economy of things. Some of your translations, some of your translations, might have. Some of your translations might have, in the morning, I pray to you, or I direct a prayer to you. So it's this very personal, very intimate relationship. But the idea is, in the morning, I lay my requests before you. And it, you could even, one, one guy has written this, in the morning, I place my requests in the tabernacle before you. Now, remember when David wrote, the temple hadn't been built yet. So it, this whole idea in the morning is in the morning is when I have my intimate time with you, Lord. Let's put it in the way we talk about in 2020. In the morning is when I have my quiet time with you. So I lay my sacrifice, my sacrifice of prayer. I put my requests on a table in the tabernacle before you. Now, I'm really embellishing that. I'm really fleshing that out. But that's the idea. And then what? Then I watch. Then I wait with expectation for you to answer. Isn't that wonderful? Here you have, what's what's one of the spiritual disciplines of King David? Verse 3 tells you, in the morning, you hear my voice. I present, like presenting a sacrifice to you, I present my request on a table in the tabernacle. I lay them out before you and then I wait, I watch. Here is a man who understood what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Be certain God hears and answers your prayers. Don't ever worry about that. Don't ever be concerned. Your intimate relationship with the personal loving God is rooted in your confidence and faith and trust in him. And when you pray to him, you know he hears, you know he answers. So you have that discipline in verse 3 and this remarkable urgency in verse 1 and 2 as he addresses God, Yahweh, my King, my God. At this point in King David's life, he has nowhere else to go but God. And so he waits, he watches. Isn't that, that's tremendous trust. That's awesome confidence in a God who hears and answers prayer. And remember, most of the Psalms, although they are hymns that they sing, or I should say that they sang, uh, they, they ultimately are prayers. That's usually the origin of them. So... Let's, you, you with me on that? I, it's not hard material, but it's, it's quite wonderful the way in which David frames this. I, I, just, I just love these psalms, so I hope they're a benefit to you.
1: Jim, could you speak now, to the, could you speak <laughs> to the, the um, aspect of patience here and faith um, that God will ultimately answer? Because I know, you know, we're all impatient. Um, we tend to get that way because of who we are in the flesh. So, time frame uh, for that patience and and confidence. That
0: yeah, uh, you know, if, if I can go back to uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew seven seven through eleven, when Jesus repeats asking, "It shall be, you shall receive knocks to be open, all that." And then he says, um, you guys who are evil, um, let's pretend a situation like this. Your child comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. Give me a piece of bread. You remember what Jesus says? You would not give your child a stone. That's a very inappropriate gift. Your your child is hungry and and asking for bread, bread, one of the staples of the ancient world diet. And you give him a stone? And then secondly, he says, or... If your child comes to you and says, Daddy, I'm hungry, give me a piece of fish, another kind of staple of the diet, the ancient world, you wouldn't give him a serpent, would you? And the word serpent there is like a viper. I mean, it's poisonous. That's a harmful gift. That's a dangerous gift. When your child asks you for something, you wouldn't give them something inappropriate or dangerous. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give what is good to those who ask? So the reason I'm factoring that in, David understood as he watched and waited that God's response would be good. But I asked the guys this this morning, who defines what's good?
2: No, I, I ask God them. God does but God right. defines <laughs> we have we have a model for that right? Our we yeah. have parents? If uh, if your son came in, your if your eight year old son and Kate said, uh, "Give me a loaded uh, Glock, I want to go play in the backyard." Your answer yes. would probably be no, no matter how many times or how much protestations. That's there right.
0: Were. That's right. That's right. And that's David is or excuse me, Jesus in Matthew seven there is giving. It doesn't take it doesn't take rocket science to understand what he's saying. If you give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father give you give what is good to those who ask? And so when David is asking in this urgency, his expectation is God's going to answer and he'll wait. Now, when you and I pray and we wait, sometimes it takes a long time for God to answer. I studied under a man who prayed for 42 years that his dad would come to know Jesus Christ. 42 years he prayed. And finally, near the end of this man's life, his father came to know Jesus Christ. He was a military man, and I still can hear him saying that to us. My dad snapped to attention and said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I mean, it was that, you know, that's an example of sometimes God's answers are not instantaneous. Sometimes
2: God's answers take time. Think about the whole Middle East thing, going yeah, back exactly. to the power thing. It's like, all right, God, I'll help you out here. You know, you're obviously a little too slow here, so we'll I'll, I'll, I'll fix yeah. it for you. Yeah, exactly.
0: And God's not too interested in those kinds of things. So, I mean, this is, a, this is another dynamic element of our prayer life. But our faith and confidence and trust in the Lord when we pray doesn't have a time element to it. Now, it's a very easy thing for me to say in this rather lovely day with the sun's out and we're all comfortable in our homes. Testing that, though, wow. Trusting in the Lord, He hears and answers our prayers. We're going to see; it's not in this psalm, but in some of the coming psalms. uh, I can't remember if it's David or Asaph, but one of them will say, "I've been praying to you, and I've been praying to you, and I've been praying to you, but the heavens are silent. Where are you, God?" So that's the same, the same dynamic that can also come out of our prayer life. We're starting to get the idea that maybe God has not heard me. And that's why Jesus says in a parable he teaches, be persistent. Keep praying. Keep praying. God hears. God will answer. Well, you have this um, you have this, 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 introduction to Psalm 5. And now you, you look at verses 4, <clears throat> 5, 6, and 7. I want you to notice something here. Why does David have this kind of confidence and trust in God? Where in urgency, he's crying out to God that we read about in this wonderful summary of his his spiritual discipline. Going to the Lord, presenting and so on. He knows his God. He knows his God's character. He knows his God's attributes. He knows the character traits of the living God. In my judgment, that's one of the reasons why theology is so important. To teach, I would say this to the guys, to teach our people the doctrine of God. To teach our people who is God? What are his attributes? What are his qualities and characteristics? What is he like? He's not some unknown, abstract entity up there, the great other. No, he's not. I mean, he is that. He's transcendent. But he's personal. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. He's infinite. And so David says, you are not a God. I'm in verse 4 now. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. You almost want to say, well, duh. But that's really an important thing to remember. Our God does not delight in wickedness. His character and his nature, These things are an affront to him. They violate his holiness. He's offended by wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. I really like that. Evil is not welcome in God's house. That's why he uses that little word "dwell." Evil is not welcome in God's house. The welcome that isn't out in God's house. God does not delight in wickedness. evil cannot dwell in God's house, which is the reason, as you all know, the reason that the Father sent the Son to deal with our problem. The second thing <coughs> the second thing he mentions. About the character of God is in verse 5. The boastful, the arrogant, the proud shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. What is verse 5 all about? The arrogance of trying to live independent of god humanity has declared its independence from god that's what genesis 3 is all about and so david just categorically the boastful the arrogant those who are living autonomously they want to live independent of god i don't want to live according to your standards i don't want a relationship with you that person shall not stand before your eyes. They're, they have no relationship with the living God because you hate all evildoers, the habitual doers of evil. And verse, verse five is, 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 this is willful, intentional, defiant disobedience of God. This is the human being who stands and shakes their fist at Almighty God and declares, I want nothing to do with you. I do not want to live according to your values, your virtues, or your standards. I can take care of myself. I don't need you. I don't want you. And I want to be independent of you. That's the spirit of verse 5. And so it's, there's an arrogance, the Greeks have a word for this, it's hubris, H-U-B-R-I-S. It's hubris, an arrogant, defiant pride in the face of God. King David says, that person will not stand. And then finally, and I'll have to stop there because I think we're getting close to the end of our hour. Finally, in verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors, that Hebrew word is related to the word abomination. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So he's getting very specific now. God, because of who God is, verse 4, and because those who have defiantly, intentionally shake their hands at God, verse 5, will meet with God's judgment. You destroy those who speak the lies of iniquity. The Lord finds abominable those who wantonly shed blood and those who are treacherous, deceitful, duplicitous people. They're in phenomenal danger when it comes to standing before God. Well, there's much we uh, want to do because the first word of verse 7 is but, but we can't get into that. We're out of time. But you see what King David is doing. Very personal, intimate relationship with God, first three verses. Now David praying, but based on what he knows about his God. What are the character traits of his God? That's what he's been talking about in 4, 5, and 6. Verse 7 is quite wonderful. We'll look at that next week. Is everybody with me? Okay. All right. I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll we'll let you go. And what that means is we leave meeting. We click on leave meeting. But let me pray as, as we, we end our session. Lord, we thank you for uh, our study today and these wonderful psalms that we've been looking at. We thank you for the the wonderful uh, terms and, 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 and applicational lessons we've tried to draw from uh, Psalm chapter four, this fourth Psalm. Lord, help us to be men of joy, men of peace, as well as men of faith. Help us to exhibit as David says, what's the evidence of God's faith in your life? David says, the joy that God's produced in my heart and the peace that even enables me. All things are settled between me and God. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, that's true of each one of us. May we manifest that. May we live that joy and that peace. And help us to be men who have great confidence and certainty about our prayer life. We have that wonderful privilege with even urgency in our voice of crying out to God. Because oftentimes there's nowhere else to go. There's no one else we can tell these things to except you. Thank you that you're that kind of God. You're not some impersonal force, just some other being. You are a personal, loving God who wants an intimate relationship with each one of us. May we be men that exhibit that. So we commit this dime to you in these difficult days of of being isolated and, and being away and not being able to interact like we normally do. Sustain us through this and even in the midst of this, may we continue to be men who represent you well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. See you next week, guys. Have a good week. You too. Bye-bye. See you later. Thank you.